Okay. So, um, how many of you, I'd like to check, how many of you have been to one of the other uh, classes in this series? Um, okay, good. So, some of you, but not the majority by any means. So, today is a, is a fun day. Please, come in. Um, uh, because we've been, there's also, well, because there's candy that's not usually here. That's exciting. Um, but also because the, 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 this class has been structured, um, it's a three-part series. In the first, we spoke about the uh, emergence of the Old Testament canon. Um, and we looked at how um, actually the closing of the canon of Hebrew scripture, um, which is also known as the Tanakh, Torah, Nebim, and Ketubim, um, was in process at the time of Christ, and that specifically the law and the prophets, so the Torah and the Nebim, were uh, already uh, closed um, at the time of Jesus, that there's references to the law and the prophets within Jesus, that, the, that the, these are quoted authoritatively in scripture in a very clear way. Um, and so we know that uh, by that time th- that was established and that there was still a kind of open category of writings that was very quickly um, closed uh, in, by, in terms of mainstream uh, Jewish thought Primarily because there was new, or well, not primarily, but, but, but certainly significant and relevant was because there was these new writings about Jesus, um, the apostolic uh, writing, you know, uh, witness to um, Jesus' uh, life and his death and his resurrection. Um, and there was a sense of, well, these are not the writings that we're thinking of. <laughs> um, and so we saw how that was the... Um, first kind of move in terms of the formation of the Old Testament canon. And then last week we went through what I'm still tired from, I hope you've recovered, but um, the discussion of how the New Testament emerges. And we looked specifically at the way in which um, nomina sacra, which were these um, uh, these sorts of, of, of abbreviations um, to recognize, and these are, are these, this is, uh, you know, from, from, the, from the German and Swedish editions, but that this was throughout up until the 15th century, these nomina sacra, um, ways of writing God's name uh, or na- names of God in a way that showed respect, that show a kind of uh, unity to the scriptures, because we see the same kind of respect that you would use in writing in the Old Testament in the, in the apostolic writings, um, and that we see that the, there are new copies being made of the Old Testament. And we spoke specifically about the material culture of um, early Christianity and the preference for a codex rather than for a, um, a, 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 a scroll, um, a roll, um, and what this might say about how Jesus was the law um, for or was the embodiment of 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 of, of sort of, of of the law of God, and that everything became a kind of oral Torah. That all, everything, the Old Testament and the New, became a kind of commentary on Jesus Christ, um, and that and that and this was precipitated by a change away from the dominant material means of, of writing. That most works in the in the first 
four centuries were written on scrolls, but this, that this Christian preference for the codex has a certain meaning um, and theological implication. So uh, that, that is, is sort of where we've been. Are there any questions about um, that brief summary, things that came up in, in the past or things that you weren't here for and would like a little bit more about before I press on? Seeing none, I will press on. Um, so one of the things that came up at the very end of the uh, discussion last week was the uh, emergence of Christian heresies, um, which uh, precipitated or, or certainly um, precipitated conflicts about what constituted the scriptures, what, you know, what were the holy scriptures. Um, and I mentioned just very briefly Marcion. And uh, Marcion was a, um, well, he was the son of a shipping magnet. And uh, he came to Rome and at Rome uh, declared, he, he arrived, and I think, I mean, he seems like one of these guys who's sort of had a lot in life. And, and he arrives and he announces that he has this view um, that the, Old Testament and most of the apostolic witness is wrong um, and that uh, that there really should just be one gospel and a, a, what he called apostle, which we assume is the acts of the apostle, apostles. Um, so that everything, all these other testimonies were unhelpful, that they were, that what we needed to focus on was Luke and Acts and he went so far as to edit Luke um, to make it less Jewish. So what we see here is a cultural conflict which is not unsurprising, um, unfortunately, in that uh, the Christianity arises out of, a, of an undeniably Judaic context. It, I mean, Jesus was Jewish. I mean, this is the Old Testament prophets. We've been talking about how they... they um, point towards Christ's coming. And, um, and so this was something that for Romans who were accustomed to being, at, you know, sort of seeing themselves at the center, the idea of, um, of the kind of culture of the provinces coming with this kind of authority on their lives um, was, uh, was something that was not, it wasn't natural uh, for them. And it certainly was something that Marcion objected to. And I want to read, uh, we have from Irenaeus um, a, uh, a, a copy of what, um, of what Marcion did with the introduction <coughs> to the gospel. And I need to find it in my notes. Um, all right, okay. Um, well, what's, 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 what's interesting, ah, here we are, here we are. And I said it was Irenaeus, it's actually Tertullian. Both of them are Christian authorities who speak out against Marcion's heresy. And I should say that, that immediately when, when Marcion arrives at Rome um, and he's thought to come, well, he's known to have come to Rome at, at uh, 137 AD is when we're talking about, and he announced this, he was promptly excommunicated and kicked out of the church. Um, there was, there was, that was... You know, we have these scriptures, we have, you know, a broader field of testimony to Jesus, and um, 
and and we're we're not going to tolerate someone coming in and and trying to erode those uh, those testimonies and that witness. Um, but he was wealthy enough that he had his own community and he had his he kept his own church going and he wrote some works. Uh, and one of them was his his little gloss, if you will, on the Gospels, which um, appears to have had Luke as its basis. And the first line of that was, so he cut out all the stuff about the birth narrative. And the beginning of the Gospel, we're told from Tertullian, was in the 15th year of the Principate of Tiberius, he came down to Capernaum. They were astonished at his teaching, which was against the law and the prophets. So we see that <laughs> that's, that's really not what the Bible says at all, but uh, it's what Marcion wanted, and so he made it that way. Um, and, uh, and so why, why, why is all this important? Well, because it's after Marcion tries to um, remove certain scriptures from the Christian community you know, and, and edit them that we start to see lists emerging from um, uh, Christian leaders saying these are the books that, that, that we're sticking with. You know? And if somebody comes in and tries to stick, throw out the Old Testament, you've got a problem on your hands. Now, it doesn't mean that we have... Um, I mean, the earliest, I think, is, is, is uh, with um, Athanasius um, and his, his, uh, his, his particular canon. Oh, actually, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, Clement of Alexandria has, has, a, has one of these lists. Um, we see a, such a list in, 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 um, in uh, Eusebius's Church History. Um, so this is, this is towards the end of the second century, right? So following on Marcion's heresy. Um, and, uh, and so there's this, this need arising um, for, the, for, for a clear statement of what are the books of the Bible so that when people try to erode them, um, the church has a, has a clear sense of what's going, you know, of, of, of what they're up to. Um, and, and actually, where we get the present um, complete version that we have that makes up our Bible today, um, we do see that in Athanasius, which is in the 4th century when he writes. Um, and we see all the books of the present New Testament listed uh, by him. And so, uh, but, but what's important is that this sense of a, a unitive New Testament is emergent very early on. And... You know, if, if Marcion's excommunicated in 137 A.D., right, um, he's excommunicated immediately because he throws out the Old Testament. So we know that the Christian community regards the Old Testament as scripture and authoritative for their belief at that time. And that also the, the Christian community sees the corpus of New Testament writings of the apostolic witness to be larger than merely Luke and Acts. Uh, in fact, uh, I think an, an interesting um, uh, wor word to sort of consult with here is uh, it, it Tertullian, again, writing uh, uh, against Marcion, explains, of the apostles, John and Matthew first instill faith into us, while of apostolic men, Luke and Mark renew it afterwards. These all start with the same principles of the faith so far as relates to the one and only God, the Creator, and his Christ, how that he was born of the Virgin, came to fulfill the Law and the Prophets, never mind if there does not occur some variation in the order of their narratives, 
provided that there is agreement in the essential matter of the faith in which there is disagreement with Marcion. So this particular moment of Tertullian, who's, who's an, uh, an authoritative figure in, this, in the church, writing against Marcion's heresy, um, trying to de-Judaize the Christian faith, which unfortunately um, he was not the last person to attempt to do, uh, it shows us something that I think is, is, is particularly exciting and, and, and important. And that is, um, other than that, I think it's really interesting that they think that John and Matthew are the earliest, you know, and then Luke and Mark come later, which is, I think, well, I, I, anyway, there's, there's, there's conflict about that in the scholarship, and, and I think Tertullian was on to something. Um, but uh, far be it from me to say uh, more. But, uh, but what's interesting here is what is articulated about what the principles of the faith are? We hear that God is creator, Right? We hear that Christ is God's Son. So we, we hear it's, it's the faith, so far as it relates to the one, only God, the Creator, and His Christ, and how His Christ was born of the Virgin. Right? So that's something that, remember, Mark does not include the Nativity narrative in his Gospel. And yet, Tertullian here is emphasizing that birth narrative. And... And, and then he continues to say, and he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. This is about as Old Testament a focused account of God as, as, as you might get anywhere. God as creator, straight out of Genesis, um, that his word was with him at the beginning, his Christ, right? His, his word is with him at the beginning. And that we talked about how earlier in, in, in the first session about the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah um, has a, uh, uh, a prophecy that, um, that the Messiah will be born of a virgin. So that is a key detail because it connects the story of Jesus with the Old Testament narrative. It's really important for Tertullian because that is a detail that's right about how this is a prophecy out of the Old Testament. And that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. It doesn't say, he doesn't say here, which is, which is interesting, you know, he doesn't say he came to teach and preach and heal and to die and be raised. It says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, it so happens that by dying and being raised, he fulfills the law and the prophets. But there is an emphasis here on an understanding of what Christian faith looks like grounded in the Old Testament. So that's Tertullian. I've also talked about Irenaeus. He's another church father, uh, contemporary, who interestingly wrote, uh, 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 when, he, when he wrote uh, on, um, goodness, I ripped off a page of my notes to bring it, and then I brought the, I brought the, I had notes on this thing, and I ripped them off and didn't bring them. <laughs> I'm such an idiot. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, they're up in my office. It's, it, it, it's not a big deal. Uh, I'll just have to remember things. Yeah, no candy for me. Uh, what is wrong with me? Oh, no, it's here. He's never going to find it. <laughs> well, that's how you get rid of the other curate, so you're not nervous. Uh, okay. Um, this is bad. Uh, all right. So, so what, what, what's interesting is that Irenaeus, who knows the apostolic writings, right? he's familiar with the New Testament, we know this, but he exp ex ex exposits, he does, uh, when, he, when he accounts 
you know, he makes an account of, of, of the Christian faith. He quotes as scripture and, and, and emphasizes in the birth narrative, not the narrative from um, Matthew or Luke, but rather he goes to Isaiah. Uh, when he talks about the crucifixion, he goes to Hosea. He actually writes about Jesus' life quoting only the Old Testament. Now, I raise that not because I think that the uh, apostolic writings were not influencing. I mean, clearly they were. He was talking about the story that we hear from them. But uh, what's interesting about Irenaeus doing this is that uh, we see that it's really central to ground the Christian faith in the Old Testament, understanding that the Old Testament is really producing something which allows us to, to, to see uh, what, what is a Christian document. It provides what is called a rule of faith, or a regula fidei. And, um, and that, is, uh, that regula is, is what's used when there are lots of texts circulating about the life of Jesus. And so the question is, how do we know what is authoritative? What, what can be trusted and what can't? Um, and typically, what we, what we hear about, I, I really do feel guilty, um, is that uh, 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 we, we have, we have a, a Genesis that looks something like this. There's a regular... Then we get a New Testament, right, which is, are the documents that the church thinks fit with this rule of faith. Then they decide, gee, the Old Testament is really important to understanding this New Testament, so let's have that. And then later on, when there's lots of controversy with heresies, we end up with creeds. And that's sort of the development in some people's minds, I would say too many minds, about how we end up with a kind of orthodox Christianity. That it starts with the Christian community discerning what happened, then selecting certain New Testament scripture, certain witnesses as New Testament scripture. They decide, gee, the Old Testament's really helpful to understanding this stuff, and then they stick with the creeds. Nothing could be less Jewish, by the way, than, than doing it this way. You see? And yet, and this, this unfortunately is very much in the minds of a lot of scholars. Now, I have been trying to set up in this, in this, in this, in, in this sort of discursive mess uh, that the Old Testament is authoritative at the time of Jesus for the Christian community. And we start with the Old Testament being authoritative. And what we've just heard from here um, in terms of looking at, A, how Tertullian grounds his objections to Marcion, not by saying, gee, there was a lot of good stuff in those other New Testament writings you threw out, but rather by going straight to the Old Testament, um, the things that the Old Testament points to, and emphasizing that they're essential to the Christian witness. He is really diligent. All right. So from that, we get um, emergent, and we see this... uh, uh, that, that, that in that articulation, we get a regular fide, which is then used to figure out which writings, to help guide us, which writings are actually authoritative, which ones are telling the story of how God fulfilled his promises in the scriptures, read Old Testament, 
in the life of Jesus Christ. And that, that rule of faith that develops out of that ends up giving us a clear picture of what belongs in the New Testament and what does not. And it's after that that we end up with creeds. Um, so this is, this is quite different. And what's also I, I would like to do, just because it's fun to play on the board, is kind of box these two things in because they're both emergent at the same time, right? There's never a time when the community is discerning, gee, what is the basis of the Christian faith uh, without the apostolic witness? They have, whether it's oral in liturgy or whether it's been written on codices, uh, these two things are sort of parallel developments. And that makes good sense. So so really, we, we could do it this way. And you may not be able to see it, and that's all right, because now I, I'm just being a little... Uh, un- but, but, you know, we could, we could say Old Testament, New Testament, slash, regular, and then points to closure of the NT, right? So we decide um, that we're not going to add additional books after this, and that then we have the creeds. Um, of course, so, so that actually, that, that, so what we see is that the, the New Testament is kind of in flux in the middle, together with this regular fidei, but the, uh, fidei, but the, but the Old Testament and, uh, the, the Old Testament is really the, the foundation, that the scriptures begin um, there. Um, and so this is, it, this is helpful when we think about how, um, what kind of what, what's authoritative for us? Really, that from the beginning in Christian communities, the Old Testament, the scriptures have been authoritative. And it's not about a kind of community discernment of like picking what books are nice and friendly, but rather that there's a, 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 a growth that comes straight out of the Old Testament um, into the process by which uh, the New Testament texts are, are, are gathered and, and tested against and then um, the sort of emergence of, uh, of a summary or articulation of what are the central things that we get out of that text, which we find in the creeds. Okay. Are there any questions at this time, based on what I've said? I'm sure. just adding one. Okay. Since I've been going to class this year to join this church. Yeah. And okay. It's the gospel according to Oh, yeah. You want to add that one? <laughs> well... Oh yeah, I I I know Matt Schneider's a big fan of that, the Gospel According to, uh, to Peanuts. It did not make it in. It was not written early enough to make it in. I'm afraid, but yeah, that's a, that's a good recommendation. You had a question, Jim. So I mean, for sharing with others, I, I loved your point that the Old Testament scriptures were verified by Christ verifying the scriptures. Yes, absolutely. So you got roughly two thirds of the scriptures that we use today. Mm-hmm. Christ Himself verified. Yeah, He treats them as authoritative. Absolutely. I mean, that's signed, sealed, delivered, and, and, and done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that really reduces the scope of people challenging the the, 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 the right. remaining scripture. Right, and so it so it makes a move like what Marcin does, or, or people will do this, and gosh, it drives me crazy uh, when people say, "Well, 
I don't really like the God of the Old Testament. But the God of the New Testament, I can get along with. It's like, you know what? It's the same darn God. You know, like, he predicted that he was going to do this stuff in the New Testament, and that made him loving and good then. So, like, ugh, very upsetting. Um, but I, I think what's interesting for us as Christians, we have such an important living experience of Jesus Christ in working in our lives um, that we tend to think, gosh, isn't it great that Jesus quotes the Old Testament and uses it in an authoritative way that makes us confident that that stuff must be authoritative. For the folks at the time, what's going on is they're saying, gosh, this Jesus guy, I hear that he was raised from the dead. I've trusted and known these scriptures in my community, like the Old Testament scriptures in my community. And they go to the Old Testament and they say, isn't it interesting that the Old Testament story of what's going to happen is verified in Christ? So there's a, it's a kind of two-way street, and it depends upon where we sort of situate ourselves as to what we think. They, they're, they're, they're mutually upbuilding um, between the Old and the New Testaments. Okay. Um, uh, all right. So, so we've seen in the way that the regular fidei is, uh, is, is, articulated in the writings of the fathers that there's a, a real place where the Old Testament is authoritative. And we've seen that this is, is concurrent with the New Testament writings and that, and that the, the extraction from the Old Testament of the regular fidei is useful for determining and closing the canon of the New Testament. And then later we, we, get, um, we get the creeds. And so we see that evolution. So now I'd like to switch tracks a little bit to consider um, some, sort of, some of the theological implications of what all this might mean for us um, as Christians. Um, and I'm going to start by quoting one of my professors uh, uh, from um, seminary uh, who wrote, much of the history of scholarship over the last 200 years has been concerned primarily with the original words of the prophets. In recent years, the pendulum has swung toward a focus on the final form of the prophetic books in their canonical context. Both interests are clearly legitimate and even necessary, but it is important to recognize the tension between them. The historical prophets whose oracles are preserved in these books were often highly critical of the political and religious establishments of their day. The scribes who edited their books, however, were part of the establishment of later generations. Consequently, they often try to place older oracles in the context of an authoritative tradition. In some cases, this has had a moderating effect on the oracles that may seem extreme outside or even in their historical context. In other cases, the editorial process may seem to take the edge off powerful prophetic oracles and to dull their effect. The preference of an interpreter for the original prophets or for the canonical editors often reflects his or her trust or distrust of political and religious institutions in general. This is a bit of a doozy. Um, <laughs> the the claim here, and I'm just going to summarize again, is that um, because 
we have multiple oracles, multiple prophecies, multiple events that the different biblical books are attesting to. And even within individual biblical books, Isaiah is a great example, that we have multiple prophecies that are sort of weaved into one because they tell uh, a, a uniform story um, uh, that, you know, that makes sense to consider together. That there is this process in which how the Bible was written um, by which uh, other people than the people who experience the events themselves are a part of that of of, of that of the of the of the of the record because they're they're sort of like the journalists if you will you know just as we read newspaper reports and and they they tend to be pretty objective hopefully depending upon your newspaper um, uh, there is still um, that we still know that there are choices editorial choices being made um, and authorial choices being made by the authors and so. Biblical studies has developed, you know, particularly out of, out of the, the, the tradition of historical criticism, which we, we talked about earlier uh, in a previous class where I was talking about the idea of uh, the Bible as, a, um, as an adversary for, for, for us. And, that, uh, uh, and, and you're quoting Luther in this regard. Um, and and that, that out of this comes a scholarship which becomes interested in trying to reconstruct what really happened. As, as, as a, in a way that suggests a kind of distrust of the authors, of the editors, if you will. And, and I will say that Professor Collins um, has, <laughs> has here very strongly shown his own, and I, I know this guy, yeah, he's very strongly shown his own um, distrust of editors and his desire to play a game of speculating as to what um, you know what was the what was the prof, what what happened in the original context what you know how did this how does this fit as an atomized individual piece of writing rather than as a piece of writing that's part of a broader narrative um, that people see somehow you know it's a bit like do you ever do you ever see someone's own, someone else's like um, gosh this is a bad example because I haven't figured out how it ends yet so. Um, so we see how hearing certain details from a, a second, you know, secondary party and then, the, so, and then having a kind of editorial ability to see a, a broader arc of the narrative than the people who are involved themselves are likely to see. Um, actually, it's, I, I think it, it, that, that there's, a, there's a really um, sort of dark turn that, that Professor Collins is making here where he's saying, that there's this desire to kind of clean everything up and make it less transgressive um, and make it, you know, fit more with a certain history. And, and frankly, I, I just have to say, I understand that kind of 1960s-influenced uh, sort of anti-establishment attitude, but I just don't think the biblical record points to that because, you know, if anything, there's the, the Deuteronomistic history, of a, uh, which, which is very much in the Bible, of people being disobedient to his will and being punished for it. And, and that's, that, if anything, is the establishment view and tradition. That is it. Um, and it is very important in, in, in understanding uh, God's will for us and uh, what he's done for us um, and understanding the scriptures as a whole. But we see again and again in the scriptures words of forgiveness that are being... Um, 
being said, words, uh, you know, prophecies that are extremely condemnatory of Israel. Uh, well, and there's also, and, and their apostasy, uh, you know, you think of Jeremiah. Um, there are uh, texts like Hosea, which are very much um, sort of conflicted about how, uh, I mean, the priests in, 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 in Hosea are, are really here, they get, they, they get chewed out in that prophecy. Um, and so the scribal authorities, and yet we still have that in the text of Hosea. So I think there's an, uh, there's an unnecessarily kind of conspiratorial attitude about this, about the editors. And so what we get in the Bible is not necessarily the first-hand account of everyone saying, I was here, and this and this happened, um, and... You know, in, in the Old Testament, a lot of it is history. You know, if, you know, a lot of it is something where there's multiple layers. But just as my friend James was able to see things that I um, was not able to see because of the, his sort of distance from the event, the scriptures uh, represent, uh, are, uh, give us an opportunity that there's a giftedness there that we're able to stand uh, a little bit um, with, a, with a broad view of what's going on in, in the witness of Holy Scripture. All right, so that was a little bit about the, the, the idea of the pendulum swinging towards canon criticism, the idea that what we read uh, and what we do in biblical studies, um, in, in, this is as an academic discipline, but also in the church, uh, is to look at um, the, and I think, I think a, a lot of places have avoided the kind of what, what, what other other parts of the church have gone through of, of, of kind of trying to imagine what the original context was and discounting the witness that we have in scripture because of that and eroding its authority. Um, but, but really, because um, I, 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 you know, one gets the sense that that didn't happen at the advent much, <laughs> for at least for the past several decades, uh, which is great. Um, but uh, we see uh, in, in, in this um, in this, this move towards reading with the canon, uh, a move towards uh, understanding uh, the, the biblical witness in a, in a broader way. And I wanted to um, end on, be, before I just open, well, I'll open any, other, any questions on that little excursion briefly? Well, yeah, sure. What, like, what is the church structure at the time of Morrissey? Like, that... I mean, to say he was excommunicated, that's a pretty structural yeah. thing to do. Right. You just have the vision of the church not being so organized. Well, well, we have in the, in the Bible itself, we have, uh, uh, you know, and you know, particularly in, in, in the epistles, we have discussions of overseers. So what we know is that there would be churches in different communities um, and that they would have whoever was considered to, to know the scriptures you know, and the tradition, the best, um, was, was raised up to be the leader of that community. And as the um, church became more, um, well, and I think even at the beginning, that there's just, there, there was the people who happened to be leaders in the community also kind of naturally took on the mantle of leadership in the church as well. So we see this particularly um, in uh, you know, after Constantine and after it becomes a legal religion, that often the person who's the bishop who's, or the overseer is the person who is, you know, the patrician wealthy Roman guy who, who believes in this stuff now. And, and they've always gone to him for advice. And 
now he believes in it and they continue to go for him to, to, for advice. So there is, in, in different churches do have overseers who are in the position to remove someone from communion, which is what's going on uh, when we say that, that, that Marcin was excommunicated. He was not going to be a participant in the Lord's Supper any longer. Um, and they were going to exclude him from the community uh, because of the things he was saying and the way they would erode that. So there, there, were some, uh, there was some authority. Um, were, you know, at the time of Marcion, are they meeting all in big councils in the same way? No, not yet. But there is a kind of uh, hierarchical authoritative structure uh, which has emerged in a very natural way which is directly related to knowledge of and reception of the scriptures. Uh, which is one reason I think it's possible that we didn't hear as much about um, the... Uh, uh, I'm just thinking about how the bells are ringing. Okay, um, um, the, 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 that you don't get lists early on of what the scriptures are until it's really important to say this. Because there was this perception that if you had the books, if you had the codices, right, if you had the scriptures, or if you even sort of read them and known them, that's where you derived your authority. So it's a little like Coke's secret recipe, right? The secret recipe to the Bible, right? You don't want to tell the whole world because then crazy dudes like Marcion can go around and be like, I've read it all and let me tell you. You know, like this is how you should behave. And there were Gnostics, which is another heretical group that are saying, you know, an interesting thing that we, that we hear from Irenaeus in, in uh, his writings against heresies is he says, uh, which is fascinating because this is late 2nd century. He says, nothing is to be added or taken away from the scriptures, um, which shows that there's a sense of a canon already emergent. Um, but we also see in, in that same work, he, he says, the entire scriptures, the prophets and the gospels can be clear, unamb- clearly, unambiguously, and harmoniously understood by all, although all do not believe them. And this is because there was at the time a, a, a group of people who kind of had this sort of secret, like Kabbalah kind of attitude. We're going to teach you the inner teaching, and you're going to know, and you've got to, and, 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 and later you won't even, it's like a ladder. You'll use the scriptures to get up to the higher plane of knowledge, and then you can throw them out, you know, and you don't even need the ladder anymore because you've reached, you know, gnosis, you've reached knowledge, and, and all this nonsense. And and they, you know, and there, they, there were these kind of mystery cult charlatans around at the time of Christ. And frankly, they're still with us today. And so um, what we see in, uh, in, in, in this whole discussion is, is and, and I think why we have a clear canon emergent before we even see in the written testimony, um, is, is, a, is, a, is a kind of unwillingness to share the, the recipe, right? <laughs> um, uh, for authority with people. Uh, they, instead, they'd rather tell the story of what Jesus has done and proclaim the gospel um, rather than give a, a list of all the books that you need. Now, of course, people want to share the, the scriptures in their community. I do not get me wrong. It's not like the early church thought that lay people couldn't read the Bible, um, that nothing could be further from the case. Um, but there was, a, 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 I think, I, and I'm just speculating here that, that um, because that was seen as authoritative, there, there was this kind of check on writing up, like, these are the books in the Bible, like, here's the secret recipe to everyone. Um, because it was just a way to know. Like, if, if you had all the real, like, if you had the right books, 
you had been in discussion with the right people because they had the right books and they'd shared them with you. And it's just, you know, it, it, it's a little, it, it's a little like, um, I was going to, uh, no. It's a little like Mormons and baptismal records, right? Like Mormons often come to churches and they want the baptismal records because they want to baptize people after they're dead into the Mormon faith. And that's not a Christian faith, and, and it puts pastors in a very awkward situation because on the one hand, they're just records of baptism. We don't think what they're doing is actually accomplishing anything. But on the other hand, it's kind of saying, like, do we really want to share this information with them? It's sort of suggesting that they're part of our scene in a way, you know, that, they're, that, that we somehow tacitly approve of what they're doing, and, and, and we don't. Um, so similarly, you're not sharing the scriptures with people who you don't think are trustworthy with them, right? Like if you think that they're going to abuse them, you don't share a copy of, of a codice. You don't give them that if you don't think that they have a sense of how important it is. Okay, so I, I would like to just wrap up um, by, by looking at the, the Luther quotation, um, which I had mentioned before, where Luther says, um, well, where, where Luther regards the... Um, the scriptures as our adversary. The scriptures are our adversary not in that they confront us with things that we don't want to do or we have to, they're, they're, or even more clearly, that they, we, we look at the scriptures and we think, gosh, uh, this, this is such a mess. It's such a jumble. What we have to do, it's our adversary. What we have to do is we have to go unjumble the jumble of scripture. Um, that's how a lot of recent scholars have approached that and they really have abused Luther's statement about that. But instead, what Luther's talking about, and I think this is much more consistent with the early fathers as well, is he sees the Bible as a world uh, which, which is totally different from our own. And Marcion is a great example of this. Here is a wealthy, educated Roman Patrician guy, you know, he's, you know, I don't know, well, he's not really patrician, but, but you get the idea. He's, a, he's, he's an establishment guy, and he knows his tradition, and he says, I don't want to do this whole Jewish thing. I'd like to be with the Christians. They seem to be interesting people, but I am not into the whole Jewish thing, and tries to throw it out, because that world is so different. And I think there's a tendency, particularly when we look at this, this story, that this false story of the evolution of the scriptures, there's a tendency to think, we are telling one story and it's the, it's, it's, the, it's the salvation history of what God's done for us in Jesus Christ. And by all means, that is the most wonderful uh, treasure that the Bible has to offer. But that is not why we have the Bible. God's revelation is a revelation that stands on its own initially pointing towards further revelation. It's not as if we have a theology and we build a Bible around it. We have a Bible and we build a theology and a narrative out of it. And what that means is that the, the, the whole Bible is something more than just the story that we get in the summaries in the regular faith, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the rule of faith, which incidentally in Greek is canon. But I didn't get to do that. That was, that was a different thing. You know, all the way up to... Um, to the creeds, that the, that the creeds are an extrapolation of something. But we don't look at the Old Testament as merely some kind of book that's helpful to, for, you know, collection of writings that's helpful for us to understanding the story of what happened in Jesus Christ. That is to inappropriately minimize the power of God's revelation. 
What we see in the Bible is a whole new world that confronts us and that is different from our own. And we can choose to be like Marcion, even if we don't have the means or the inclination to get up and tell everybody, like, I don't want this stuff. And say, I'm only interested in these scriptures in a way that tells one story about uh, my salvation. The scriptures are bigger than you and your salvation. It tells that story. It tells a wonderful story that includes that. But it's bigger. It's a better world that includes even more. And what we see there is actually, I think, when we're confronted by the scriptures as a different world, what we are preparing to do is enter into a new world. And you know that that's what you and I will do because of Christ's sacrifice, because of his death, his dying and, raised, and being raised for us. We have the promise of being brought into a new creation, brought into a new world. And so to read the Bible is to practice for heaven. It's not just a promise that you're getting to heaven. Do you ever wonder, like, what are we going to do once we get there? Like, I've been told that death has no power, but like, what's that world going to be like? If you want to know what that world's going to be like, read the Bible. Read it for the whole of what it is. And by doing that, therein you have a, a, a glimpse of what it will be like to come into new creation, the kingdom of heaven. So with that, I have to pray and go. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time reflecting on the power of your word in Holy Scripture. We thank you for the promises that you have made to us um, and for the gift of faith in Christ Jesus. Help us to come into new worlds that we might be prepared to come into your new creation, your new heaven and earth, um, bought for us at great price by you, Jesus Christ. We ask all this in the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen.